Since the 1990s, people have been trying to figure out who's the best friend. Is it Chandler because of his dry wit, Phoebe because of her unabashed enthusiasm, or maybe Joey because of his loyalty? Well, leave it to statistics to give us a firm answer. Who's the best friend from the show Friends is the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me is regular panelist John Baylor, chair of Miami Statistics Department. Our guest today is Matthias Bosner. Bosner is a professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Pennsylvania Perlman School of Medicine. His primary research interests include the effects of sleep loss on cognition, population studies on sleep time and waking activities, the effects of noise on sleep and health, and astronaut behavioral health on long-duration space missions. Occasionally, he likes to take on odd projects, like running a quantitative analysis on who was the best friend on Friends, or using 150-year-old data to investigate how sounds affect sleep. His work on Friends was recently featured in an issue of significance and is why he's joining us here on the podcast today. Matthias, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Your research interest broadly is really, really interesting, but I am curious how this Friends project got started. Well, uh, I mean, obviously, while watching a Friends episode, that was when it was still on Netflix uh, here in the United States. And, you know, family, we were watching uh, one of the episodes. was the one where uh, Rachel gives birth to her baby and she still didn't have a name for that baby. Uh, and then Monica says, you know, I, I knew the name for, for my babies, you know, since I was, a, I was a child. And then Rachel wants to know it. And, you know, Monica says it's Emma. And then she allows her to use that name for her newborn daughter. And I thought, wow, this, is, this was really nice. Uh, uh, Monica is really a good friend to Rachel. And then it dawned on me that, you know, these friendship deeds, they could actually be scored across all 236 episodes (laughs) of the the series. And, you know, it wouldn't be easy, uh, would take a long time, and and it wouldn't be completely free of bias, of course. Uh, But, you know, it could be done. And, uh, you know, I've, I've worked in science for more than 20 years now. And, in any kind of problem, I'm always looking for a good quantitative <laughs> approach. Like, you know, how can you like put this in numbers and, and run analyses on that? And so this was like the moment where I said, hey, you know, this this is a way to actually analyze this quantitatively and get away from all these, you know, opinion polls and pieces I've read before where somebody says, oh, you know, Phoebe's the best friend or, uh, you know, who knows, uh, Chandler is the best friend. And, and oftentimes they, they just, you know, uh, quote a couple of episodes mm-hmm. uh, and it's all very much driven by, you know, whatever they recall were like good or bad things. Um, and so I thought, you know, let's let's put a twist on this and uh, actually score this as a family. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and that's what we did. Yeah. So, so now I'm going to have to think about using your scale to judge all of my friends' interactions. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's, that's, oh, no. Okay, Rosemary, you've got to work on keeping your plus twos here. I'm just telling you. you know? <laughs> so can you talk a little bit about how you how you stepped forward and went from what does it mean to be a good friend and then how is that mapped to this assessment of these interactions? 
Yeah, so I mean, of course, friendship can be defined in so many different ways. And actually, in the significance piece, we we cite an author who just, you know, lists all the different qualities of a friend, like uh, being trustworthy, being a good listener, uh, having a good sense of humor. And these are just three out of like 12 properties or so. But it was basically, you know, us watching these episodes. And whenever there was a situation where we said, oh, this is really not nice. You don't do that if you're a good friend. Or, or this is really a nice thing. And this is what you actually want to see in a friend. We gave, you know, friendship scores <laughs> for positive and negative deeds. And we actually had a little bit of a scale that is, you know, we were giving like plus, a plus two or plus one point for good deeds <clears throat> or minus one and minus two points. And, you know, uh, the overwhelming majority of those were in the in the plus one, minus one category, but there were a, a few big ones. And also, you know, these are things that didn't make it into the paper. I mean, overwhelmingly, there were actually, you know, a good friendship deeds. And the, the nasty negative ones were, were not, not that frequent. But yeah, it was a it was a it was a long haul, and you know we also decided not to you know watch. Yeah, I mean me, you know I'm also you know trained in epidemiology, you know knowing about all sorts of biases. So we didn't watch like episode one through two uh, thirty six like in one in one go. But we we jumped back and forth, right? We didn't want this 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 bias of our our, our uh, scoring changing across the course of, you know, us watching all these these episodes. So we were jumping back and forth. I kept a list of episodes we'd already watched. And I put, you know, whenever there was something, I put it into a notebook on my phone and then I had to transcribe that later to a spreadsheet, etc. And that spreadsheet is available for everybody uh, to look at, scrutinize, criticize, whatever, and run, run, run their own analyses. Matthias, you keep saying us and we. And so one of the things I found really interesting reading this was who your research partners were. So could you talk a bit about how that partnership grew out of this project? Yeah, so my research partners were my wife, Etienne, and my uh, now 17-year-old son, Bruno, and my 14-year-old daughter, Malin. And, uh, you know, they were, they were actually, they're old enough now to watch Friends, you know. I mean, it's, it's a pretty benign series. Right. But, you know, I wouldn't want to watch it with them when they were five or something. So we started watching it and they loved it. And that's actually another poll that I quote in the significance piece is that actually the, 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 among the youth in the, in the UK, it's the most popular TV show. You know, it's, it's like, you know, some 20 years old or so, but, you know, it's, it's kind of timeless in that sense. So, you know, and they were on board. So, you know, we were watching together and we were scoring together. I mean, obviously not everyone was there all the time. So, you know, we gave those absentee scorers a, a chance to look what we had scored. And, you know, everybody had seen all episodes so many times that everybody could relate, relate right away. Said, oh, yeah, yeah, I remember. And I agree, you know, this is, this is the right scoring. In a statistical sense, it's not optimal <laughs> because we can't say anything about inter-observer variability. You know, it would have been, I guess, better if we had like four separate scorings and then we could like make comparisons. Does everybody score it in the same way? So, you know, we, we didn't think of that. And also it would have been less fun, you know, just yeah. to watch everything uh, on your own. My husband helped me with my uh, my master's thesis coding. I did a content analysis and I was reading and prepping for this. And I looked at him and I'm like, this I don't think we would have survived if we tried something like this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was tough towards the end. But, you know, the closer you get to the end, the more excited you are that, you know, it can start analysis now. And I think that's something if you're like 
a scientist, you have to have been brought up in a certain way, I think. Something where you can wait for gratification, right? I mean, you have an idea for a study. You plan that study. You collect the data. And then you analyze the data. And finally, you see the results. And that may be years later, right? So mm -hmm. it, it, there's a certain type of personality that can survive in that sort of environment. <laughs> uh, yeah. And this was one of those things. Yeah, your, your description sort of describes my sense of continuing on in grad school and then going on for academic <laughs> jobs. Then going, you know, so there was this, it seems like right. kicking the can down the road and delayed gratification defines a lot of choices. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'm, I'm curious if you, if you kind of anecdotally noticed any differences between the Raiders. Were, sort of, were, were any of the four of you kind of consistently more positive than others or viewed, viewed interactions as more positive or more negative than others? Uh, not really. I mean, there were some discussions around, you know, is is this really worth a point or should, shouldn't this be two points or one point? But I think it was pretty obvious whether something was a positive or a negative deed. Uh, it's, it's more around, you know, is this, is this really enough to qualify, you know, as, as getting a point? Because there's lots of interactions where you could say, oh, you know, I mean... I, like teasing, for example, right? That's that's so normal, but it's not really something negative in, in in a friendship sense, right? It happens all the time. It's it's just if you if you're doing something that that's really mean, which should get negative uh, a friendship score. So now you know we were pretty pretty much on board. Um, I don't know whether you know uh, I was just being too dominant, as you know being a dad and a husband. <laughs> but you, know, you would have to interview my family how, how they felt, you know, this, this whole process. You mentioned sort of Rachel using the name Emma as like this, like this thing that sparked it, right? It's this really beautiful moment of friendship. Like, yes, I'm going to let you use this name I had been holding on to for my child. And you talked about that most of these things sort of fell in the, the not super bad or not super great sort of friendship category. Could you give a few more examples of maybe what was a negative interaction and maybe what was another kind of positive interaction? Yeah, and it doesn't even have to be an interaction. I mean, uh, one of the positive things I'm thinking right now, we, we list another one in the significance piece, is when Ross bought Phoebe that bike because, you know, she, she never had a bike as a kid and she didn't really know how to ride a bike and he bought her a bike and then he trained her how to ride that bike. I mean, that's just great, right? And that's like two fat points there uh, uh, for us. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the, the, the opposite is like, and that's, you know, I mean, I have to pick a Rachel example because she really turned out to be the worst friend. And I'm hoping that Jennifer Anderson is not mad at me or something. <laughs> <laughs> but it's this, this whole Bonnie thing, right? I mean, you know, uh, Ross and Rachel had, had broken up and they were at the beach house and, and Ross had a new girlfriend and she had this beautiful long hair. But at some point, you know, in her life, she actually uh, shaved her head bald. And, you know, Rachel kind of encouraged her. Oh, you know, that looked so great. Why don't you do it again? Obviously, having in mind that she she knows Ross so well that he would hate it. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's a minus two right there because she was manipulating Bonnie into doing that. And she knew that Ross would hate it, right? You know, that's just a, 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 an example in that category. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking to Matthias Bosner, professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Pennsylvania Perlman School of Medicine. So you mentioned that Rachel turns out to be the worst friend, which I think if people watch have watched Friends, that's probably not a surprise. 
who turns out to be the best friend? Well, by a wide margin, actually, Joey turns out to be the best friend. And he had really a great relationship to everyone. I mean, there, you know, you know, when we did this network analysis, there are, you know, these edges, uh, you know, uh, pointing away from the nodes. And, you know, it's all positive for Joey. So, um, and, you know, he, he, he kind of like, took over that the lead in 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 uh, season five and he, he never lost that what was really interesting is Phoebe uh, because she turned out to be the best friend until early in season five and then the writers really drove her down I mean she she barely made it to a positive score at the at the very end of, of season 10 uh, and she actually you know we also had this uh, table originally that didn't make it in into uh, the significance article. Uh, how many seasons somebody was the best and worst friend and she was the uh, uh the worst friend in in like the three three of the of the last five seasons or so so they really drove her down and you know when i re read these pieces you know this is why phoebe was the best friend i think you know those authors have like the first seasons in mind yeah. uh because you know she 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 really changed you know and that was just the thing that's that surprised me that i never had thought about but that's another great thing about, you know, collecting these quantitative data because you're all of a sudden learning things that you, you know, never thought about. And that was uh, certainly one revelation. Another one was that the, the, the female characters really didn't get along that well. We, you know, we looked at diets, which is like, you know, pairs of friends and just the interaction between the two. And, you know, all the girls ended up, you know, at the very bottom of, of, of that list. So uh, and of course, you know, Rachel was also driving some of that. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that was really, really interesting. And actually, Ross was also a very good friend. He, he came in second uh, with a, a pretty high score, a decent score. And, you know, Chandler, uh, Phoebe, Monica just made a, a positive score, like kind of all in the same ballpark. And again, Rachel is the only one that had a negative overall friendship score mm -hmm. at the end of season 10. And, you know, she had that at the end of season one and she never lost that title. She you wow. know, was just, I mean, it doesn't mean that she didn't have like a few good deeds in there. You know, she really has a few positive moments. And, um, but, you know, overall, it, it just, you know, she was the worst friend. <laughs> yeah, it was, I, it was surprising to me to see that Rost came ahead as like the second best friend. Because I think, I feel like in the like cultural discourse, right, that those are flipped. I feel like culturally, like people love Rachel and assume like she's this great friend, I think because people like the storylines around her and assume that Ross was like this terrible friend in like the big cultural conversations. And then when I was looking at your table of the graphing the friendship over the seasons, I was like, Wow, like I did not expect Ross to be the guy who came out second behind. I I thought Joey was by hands down going to be the best friend. Like he was my favorite. Like I was, yes, I'm glad <laughs> I see that. My confirmation Ooh. bias, I'm like, I'm glad that was confirmed. <laughs> but I was really surprised about Ross. Yeah, and I mean, this is, it just shows you that there obviously are limitations to our analyses, right? I mean, one is just, you know, tallying up these, these, these good and bad deeds. You know, there, there is more to people and the perception of who they are than just these positive and negative deeds. Um, so it, exactly what you just mentioned. And I was so flabbergasted when I saw this uh, radio poll that, that they did here in uh, National Public Radio in the U.S., where uh, Phoebe was voted the best friend's friend and and ross by a wide margin the worst friend i said that this, but this also just being a fan of the show didn't make sense to me i mean he 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 doesn't come over as a as as as, as a bad friend i mean, you know it didn't make sense to me 
there's actually, you know, one, one funny story because, you know, my poor students, you know, they, they knew about this project and I talked about it constantly. And at some point I knew that Rachel was the worst friend. And then, you know, a new postdoc started in our lab. And, you know, we were, this was uh, actually pre-COVID. And, you know, we were all sitting in the in our conference room and having lunch. And I, then I just asked, you know, that new postdoc, I said, hey, are you, uh, have you watched, you know, the TV series Friends? She said, yeah, yeah, I have. And he said, I said, you know, who would you say, you know, was uh, was was the best friend, you know, out of the six? And, you know, she she thought about it a little bit. And then she she said, Rachel. And, you know, the con the conference room, everyone was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> because at that point they all knew that she was the worst friend. And she said, you know, what have I done? What have I done? So but yeah, it just comes to show, you know, everybody, everybody has their own thoughts. And, you know, this is, again, there's so many opinion pieces out there and everybody kind of, you know, comes up with another name and they, they, they list a couple of episodes. So this is why I thought it was really cool to try to do a quantitative, you know, approach to this. Well, and, you know, you could the, the investigation of how things changed over time is, is being that kind of purposeful and looking at, at how those evolved is, is an insight that if you're, if you're looking at kind of recent, you know, kind of where did, when did you stop really paying attention to the show, perhaps? Or when did you first start paying attention to the show and who was, who was positive then? You could easily see how, how there are other factors that might, might drive responses because, you've, you know, your systematic investigation is, is quite comprehensive, <laughs> whereas most people in terms of their encounters with shows are maybe not, not quite so much. You know, and I, so I really like that kind of time series investigation of, of kind of their their friendship scores. I, I also like the network component. Can you talk a little bit about the, the the data that fed into your network analysis? I mean, so you've, you've done all these ratings, but those were just transactions overall in the show that you're rating over time in the seasons. What, how did you have to, to fine tune that to start diving into to these dyads of interactions? Yeah, I think uh, it's actually uh, the way I we had uh, we had scored that is actually it's just you know a a spreadsheet where every interaction is basically one line of that spreadsheet, so it it lent itself perfectly for a network analysis because that's exactly the input that was needed, and it's actually a colleague of mine here at uh, at Penn who ran that analysis for me and he's he's acknowledged properly <laughs> in the significance uh, article and we actually picked an analysis because that's and that's something that surprised me that network analysis sometimes the uh, the sign of the contribution doesn't really matter whether somebody something has a positive or a negative influence it's just you know a considered an influence it's like basically taking you know an absolute value of that and then looking at the network but that of course you know wouldn't have worked out very well for this so you know we uh, we chose a network analysis where actually the positive and negative deeds were you know reflected appropriately and lo and behold yes uh, this also shows that Joey is the best friend there's like a a, a, a variable that basically you know shows the overall influence of somebody on the network so you know his he has he had by far the, the the greatest and positive value and Rachel had you know the 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 lowest and negative value it was interesting that Ross wasn't the the, the second best influence in that network and that was probably driven by his his relationship with Rachel because as you can imagine you know after uh, they were on a break. <laughs> there was a lot of negative uh, stuff going on between Ross and Rachel. 
Uh, and that was kind of like driving him a little down in the network analysis. So I was telling my husband about, about your study, Matthias, and the question he had that I am now going to pose to you is, are you planning on doing any follow-up on a show like Seinfeld, where it seems like all four of those friendship characters are terrible people? So I think <laughs> it would be interesting to understand who is the best friend out of that bunch of people. Yeah, you know, uh, I mean, I, I like Seinfeld, but I've never been like a, a super fan. I mean, now it's on Netflix again, so yes, we could do that. But I think somebody else could take that on. Uh, you know? <laughs> I think we, we, we've done our, you know, uh, good deed for science uh, in, in, in this kind of analysis. You know, not, another thing I wanted to mention is, and that also didn't make it into the, uh, into the paper, we also scored favorite episodes. Uh, you know, um, and uh, what what was astonishing to me that a lot of the later seasons still had a lot of favorite episodes because typically what you see, and I think that was true for Big Bang, at least for me, that in the later seasons, the show got like, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not that great anymore, right. right? And that's also the reason why at some point they just stop it because they run out of ideas and it's not that funny anymore. But Friends, uh, you know, except for season nine, which was really bad and there was not a single favorite episode, you know, season seven and eight still have like five favorite episodes, for example. And then I did this analysis where I actually correlated the number of favorite episodes with these positive and negative friendship deeds. And there was a huge po positive correlation between the positive deeds in a season and the number of favorite episodes. Oh, that's really interesting. It actually explained like 57% of the variance or so. So, uh, and the negative friendship deeds, no correlation whatsoever with, <laughs> uh, with uh, favorite episodes. So perhaps it's, I mean, it's the positivity of our family that, you know, we, we like these episodes that were, were super positive things happened and, and categorized them as favorite. I mean, of course, this gets into the realm. It's, it's really subjective, right? I mean, yeah. what you call, but, you know, uh, like bamboozled and that stuff, that's just great, you know, and you never forget these episodes. <laughs> so, you know, I am curious that, that you know, I'm, I'm sure that your, your research career probably extends beyond television. Uh, and, and, uh, yes, see. a little bit. <laughs> in your favorite series and exploring them. And, and in fact, I, I know that you've done a lot of work with sleep hygiene and with investigating noise impact. And I, I find this all really fascinating work. I mean, we certainly could have another episode even talking about that. But, but I, I'm just curious if, if, if you could, could, could take us into kind of the importance or the impact of noise on health. And some of the work that you've done there is, is, is changing up a little bit to give to, to flesh out sort of your interest beyond friends. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, well, I started medicine and I wanted to go into clinical medicine. But, uh, you know, I, I interviewed and, you know, these interviews were not very successful in the sense that I just didn't didn't like these division heads. Right. It was very hierarchical at the time in Germany. So, you know, I ended up at the German Aerospace Center. Um, and they just started a, a, a huge study, which is still the, the largest study to date on the effects of aircraft noise on sleep. And they were looking for somebody who had experience with sleep. And, you know, my dissertation uh, 
was in applied physiology and I worked in a sleep lab. So I had that background. So I said, you know, why not? I can always go back into clinical medicine, which, which I never did. <laughs> and, you know, I, I ran that study and it was just, you know, uh, one of my primary research interests and has, has never really left me. So, you know, we, I've, we've done several studies, not only in aircraft noise, on traffic noise, on sleep, uh, in the laboratory, in the field. Right now, actually, I'm funded by the Federal Aviation Administration, and we are, we are conducting the largest study ever uh, investigating the effects of aircraft noise on sleep in people's homes. And that is around se around 77 major U.S. airports. And, you know, we, we actually planned that pre-COVID, and we're lucky now that we did because we're sending out all the equipment with really good instructions and, and videos that people watch. They self-instrument. So we're measuring... Uh, body movements and heart rate during the night, and we're inferring awakenings from that. And we're measuring uh, uh, the sounds in the bedroom, and we're you know we're uh, identifying aircraft noises, and then we're 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 relating uh, uh, the two. And you know we we just enrolled the fiftieth subject, and we're we're going to enroll three hundred fifty more over the course of the next two years. And, you know, the idea is to you know, kind of inform FAA's noise policy, you know, is the policy that they have in place, is that still uh, protecting enough? Uh, and if not, what, what, what can be done? It's, it's again, you know, I mean, a lot of the, the noise effects research I've been doing, and this is a very, you know, emotionally discussed area because you, if you're affected by noise in your home, it's really annoying, especially if you have no control over the noise source and it can affect your health in, in the long run. So the idea is, you know, to gather data and inform noise policy. And that is very much again, you know, like the, like the friends piece. It's um, something that is otherwise in the realm of opinions. Now you put data behind it and uh, you give people access to the data, they can scrutinize it, they can, you know, criticize it or whatever, but it be becomes a piece uh, uh, of informed decision-making. You now have like, you know, a basis for a discussion and you can make informed decision based on the data. And this is exactly what we're doing in that FAA study as well, trying to find some, you know, hard data that also goes beyond subjective responses because you can imagine that sleep and subjective re responses is very tough because we're unconscious while we're sleeping. We're not aware of ourselves and our surroundings. And, you know, you may sleep up, uh, you may wake up in the morning and say, I had a wonderful night, right? And then we actually, and that, that's what happened when we looked in our laboratory study at the physiological data that we had recorded. No, 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 it wasn't a great night. You're just not aware of all the sleep disturbance that has been going on, right? So do you have recommendations for what, what, what for noise and sleep quality, will it you know as a as a parting shot for the episode? <laughs> what kind of guidance can you give us in terms of of kind of better sleep and 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 impact of noise? Well, I mean, you know, the the obvious thing is, you know, try to avoid noise in your bedroom, and that's tough for many people. It's also, you know, a uh, an inequity thing, right? Because the uh, uh, the noisiest areas are often, you know, the cheapest to live in. Uh, but if if you uh, if you have a choice, let's say you you can choose between two apartments. I would always say choose the one that is less noisy, uh, because the noise is going to be there and it's going to be there forever. 
and not forever, but you know, it's it, it's going to be with you. It's going to live with you at that location, and there's really no way of eva evading it properly. So really, you know, that that the uh, the the noise that you're exposed to in your home should be a major. Uh, reason for 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 picking or not picking a home. Uh, now with a with a bedroom, there are a few things you can do. Obviously, you know if you have you know proper you know double triple pane window, that helps a lot. But then you also have to keep those windows closed. We actually had in our aircraft noise study back in Germany when we went into the field, you know people had like sound insulation provided by the airport, but they kept the window open, and at that point all of the sound insulation is gone. All right. Another thing is if road traffic noise is your problem, you can uh, potentially, you know, move your back bed bedroom to the back of your house where it's, you know, not exposed to the street and that that can lower uh, noise levels substantially. And there have been studies showing that, you know, blood pressure is lower in people who have actually the bedroom on the on the other side uh, of the, uh, the, the, the the less noisy facade. Um, and, you know, we actually we 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 were just funded for another study that's looking at white noise and sleep. Uh, because, you know, me as somebody who has been investigating the effects of noise on sleep in a, in, in a negative way, I was always flabbergasted why people would introduce a noise source into their bedroom. Right. And there's, you know, a couple of theories why that might work and actually improve your sleep. One is, of course, the masking properties of the noise. So you may not hear the aircraft noise any longer because of that constant background noise level that you're introducing. It could also be just, you know, that there are sleep promoting properties of those noises. I mean, some people use ocean sounds or, or, or rain, uh, you know, uh, dropping on your window. Uh, and then there may actually be something that's, you know, we call stimulus control. It's just, you know, you're, you turning on that machine is a sign for your body, you know, it's it's time to go to bed and it's like kind of a sleep ritual. But, you know, I was wondering, is, is there really evidence behind this? So we did, you know, a systematic review of the literature and lo and behold, there is no good evidence uh, either for or against it. And that is like kind of in contrast to the millions of people who are using these sound machines and they're even putting them into the bedroom of their of their of their newborns and toddlers and you know it may actually be detrimental to sleep you know because of that introducing a noise source into your bedroom and it may actually be also detrimental to your auditory health because very much like the brain there's you know it's it's kind of like very recent research that has shown that we have a lymphatic system in the brain and while we're sleeping th this lymphatic system opens up and cerebrospinal fluid is flushed through the brain and all the metabolites that have accumulated during the wake period are being flushed out so it's it's really a waste management function that that sleep is having and i i believe that the same is true for the auditory system because you know um Hearing something is a very active process. There's like outer and inner hair cells and they consume energy when they're translating, you know, whatever we're hearing into action potentials that are then, you know, transferred to the brain. And I believe that, you know, th there ought to be a period for, you know, those metabolic byproducts that, that are accumulating in the auditory system also to be, to be cleaned, right? So introducing this noise source into the bedroom where the, 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 our auditory system is constantly perceiving these, these noises may actually be uh, detrimental in the long run to our auditory health. So, you know, this is, these are things that we will be investigating. You know, we're starting with a laboratory study, very controlled, and at some point we may be taking it into the field. Oh, very nice, thank you.
Well, that's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Matthias, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It was a blast. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter at Stats and Stories, Apple Podcasts, or other places where you find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.